You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. I have uh, walked with Christ for 54 years, and as I think about the difference between my walk as a younger Christian and my walk today, I think the biggest difference is before I thought of salvation as what God saved me from. And today I think of salvation more in terms of what God saved me for. I became a Christian midway through college because of a feeling of just emptiness inside my soul. My soul felt hollow. And nothing could satisfy that, not pleasure um, or entertainment, accomplishment, recognition, or romance. Nothing could satisfy that. And uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was really hungering for God himself. And I met some Christians and, and realized that being a Christian meant asking Jesus to come into my life. And so one summer night in June of 1968. I remember I was laying in my bed and asked Christ to come into my life. I didn't know what would happen, but I just said, if you're there, come in. And began to experience over the next couple of weeks just a sense of his presence there that gave me this joyful contentment, and that hollowness was gone. He saved me from that feeling of hollowness the thing when Jesus comes to live in your life, though, is you begin to realize things about yourself. And, and the more I get to know him, the more I realize that I was doing things that were wrong. I, I realized things I'd never noticed about myself, things I did, said, and thought. And I began to feel guilty for those things. Fortunately, I was involved with a Christian student ministry that was very clear about the gospel. And I learned that Jesus had had come to do for me what I could not do for myself. That the gospel was that he lived the life I had failed to live so that God could credit me with his perfect record of righteousness. That he died the death I deserved to die so that God could pardon me of all my sins. And that problem of guilt that I needed to be saved from, um, I finally accepted and, and uh, Stop feeling guilty for those things. However, sin continued to be a problem, and I found I was unable to do the things I needed to do, and I needed to be saved from the power of sin in my life that persisted. And over time, I learned that that life that Jesus had left, lived that I was unable to live 2,000 years ago, he could live it now in me. And I learned how to be saved from the power of my sins as he gave me the power to live the life of obedience he wanted me to live. So for a lot of my Christian life, salvation was being saved from things. And so when I knew I needed to be saved from something, God and me were like this. But when I didn't need to be saved from something, I kind of ignored God. And and what I learned was that God does not save us so that we can live our own life without guilt. Our, our, uh, uh, but he saves us for a much greater purpose. That his purpose for our life is so much better 
than anything we could come up with. And that's what Isaiah 54 is about, what God saves us for. The story of the Bible, and there's just one story in the Bible, really. The story of the Bible is a rescue story. It's about how God rescues us from the mess that Adam and Eve got us into and restores us to what God originally created us to be. And right after Adam and Eve fall, God promises to send a human being who will undo the damage they've done. And throughout the Old Testament, we get more and more information about this coming Savior, this coming human Savior. And Isaiah gives us a lot of that information. And in Isaiah, God calls this coming Savior, this coming Messiah, his servant. And in chapter 53, which we've been in for the last couple of weeks, we, we learn about the Savior, the servant's suffering and the servant's triumph, and how his suffering and his triumph saves us. Well, now in chapter 54, we find out what that salvation looks like and what God has saved us for. And in uh, verses 1 through 3, he takes us from barrenness to fruitful, fruitfulness, in verses 4 through 10, he takes us from shame to honor. And from verses 11 through 17, he takes us from fear to confidence. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. And I think chapter 54 really fleshes out what that abundant life looks like. And that the life that God has saved us for is so much better than any life we can come up with. So let's pray and then jump into this. Father, thank you for your word, the way it makes us wise to salvation. We uh, need you to be our teacher. I have nothing to say. You need to teach us from your word and, and uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Isaiah 54, Isaiah portrays Israel as a sad woman, a rejected woman, a dishonored woman. And, and uh, uh, throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, God portrays Israel as his wife, that they were married at Mount Sinai, but Israel has been a faithless wife. She has committed adultery innumerable times with other gods of the other nations. So finally, 800 years after God gave them the law at Mount Sinai, God finally allows the Assyrians to come in and take many of the Jews in captivity, scattering them through the nations. And then finally the Babylonians come in and take the rest out. And so when Isaiah writes this, Israel is a dishonored nation, a weak nation, a nation ashamed of their adultery, a nation being ruled by idol worshipers, and this is where we pick up the difference that the Messiah, the servant, makes by his suffering and by his, his triumph. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. CDC tells us that 10% of women in America are unable to bear children, which is a heartbreak today. But in early in Israel's time, it was almost a death sentence because a woman's primary, primary purpose in life was to bear children. And if she could not bear children, she was seen 
as a failure. Her husband could, could divorce her. He had no responsibility to financially take care of her. So being unable to have children was like a death sentence. She, when she could no longer work, she'd have no one to take care of her. So a barren woman is a very sad, tragic figure, and that's the picture that Isaiah uses of Israel now. And yet he says, because of what the servant in 53 has accomplished, you can shout for joy, which is not something you would expect a barren woman to do. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed in childbirth. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. You're going to need a bigger tent because you're going to have a bigger family. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. At this point, when Isaiah... Uh, writes this, there are few Jews. They are scattered throughout the nations. They are despised people, a people without a homeland. Their home back home is, is controlled by foreigners. The cities are desolate. It, it is, it is a, a, it's a very tragic picture, but because the Messiah, Isaiah said, all that's going to change. You're going to come back. Your nation will be multiplied. You will possess your cities. Not only will you rule your own nation, you'll be ruling the nations. That's what the future holds because of the Messiah. So the question is, why didn't that happen? Because Israel never ruled their nation again after this time. They went from being ruled by the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. Well, it's because when the Messiah came, they rejected him, remember? John writes in John 1, Jesus, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Remember, Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. But the majority of people refused to repent. They said, we have no king but Caesar. And they crucified the Messiah that came. They rejected him as Messiah. But not all, but as many as received him, as many as welcomed him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Those Jews who believed in Jesus were born again, became brand new people. And not only they, but all those people from other nations who believed in Jesus, they became the church, and the apostles make clear in the New Testament that those, pro those promises that were given to Israel in the Old Testament are actually given to the church. In fact, this promise from Isaiah 54, 1-3, is applied to the church by Paul in the book of Galatians. He says the church is the barren woman who will bear more and more children. Those children will fa fill the earth. So the church becomes the true Israel because they accepted the Messiah that Israel rejected. Paul makes clear this was always God's plan in Romans 9 through 11, and that after the fullness of the non-Jews come in to his kingdom, God will turn his plan back to Israel and will embrace them. All Israel will be saved, so the mercy of God will be over all people. 
So that's what's happened so far. So these verses in Isaiah 54, 1 through 3, apply to you who have put your faith in the Messiah. And what that says is, is that God has called you, saved you, not for a barren life, but for a productive life. Remember when God creates people, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember that? Scripture says that God created Adam and Eve to rule the world in his place, to develop the world. But when Adam and Eve chose to be their own God, they, know they ceased to work with God, which is what they were created to do, and you can see that throughout all human history. We still have that desire to create because we're created in God's image, to develop, to invent, to explore. And yet, the things we invent don't work real well. We, we can't rule the world without destroying the world. Every invention has un effect, unintended consequences. Isn't that true? Because we're created to work with God, not apart from God. And one of the blessings that comes what we're created for is God creates us to work with him to be productive and have the fruitfulness that he created us to live look at uh, Ephesians here for by grace you have been saved grace is unearned favor undeserved blessing and goodwill for by grace you have been saved we're not saved by what we do we're saved because God is a merciful God, a loving God who does for us what we can't do for ourselves. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You're saved when you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not as a result of works, not what we do, but what he does, um, <clears throat> so that no man should boast. We're not saved by works, but we're saved for works. Isn't that interesting? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We're not saved by what we do, but we're saved to do something. You're God's creation. You've been born again. And God has, God has got a purpose for you, a productive purpose for you, a meaningful purpose for you, that he wants to work through you, he wants to work in union with you as he created to all human beings to work with. And you can see that in the church. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, one of the smallest of seeds who grows into a huge plant. It's like leaven or yeast that a woman puts into a lump of dough until the whole thing, it, it, the kingdom of God starts invisible but grows and grows and grows until it's visible. That's what we see in the church, don't we? The church starts off only about 120 believers in Jesus by, after Jesus' resurrection. But today, it's the largest faith in the world, the fastest growing faith in the world, that God is bearing more and more children, spiritual children, through his people. He's fulfilling this promise. And he wants to do the same thing through us, that one of the things that God has saved you and me for is to use us in a unique way, the way he's designed us. And Jesus said, 
who is our example. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food, the thing that satisfies me, is to work with God and do his work. And the same thing's true for us. I've been a Christian about a year. And uh, I've been dating a gal for several years, and her dad was an amateur graphologist. And graphology is, is the belief that you can tell people's personality and their character through their handwriting. I, I don't know if I believe that or not, but anyway, he wanted to analyze my handwriting. And, uh, and so as he analyzed it, he said, huh, I see very little ambition our sense of purpose in you, and I, I knew what he was thinking. You're a nice kid, but not a great, not great husband material. And, uh, and he was right, because I had no, I was a Christian, but I had no real goal in life. Um, I was majoring in music at school, but not because I liked music, and not because I wanted to be a high school teacher, it's just that that was during the draft and you pretty much had four years of college and then you would be gone. So we had to declare a major the day we got into college and you could never deviate. So all I could think of was to major in music because I knew something about music and I figured I didn't want to be a performer because that was too much work. So I'd just be a music teacher. So I wasn't really a motivated guy and my handwriting apparently showed it. Well that year, that was my senior year and I had no idea what I was going to do after college. but. Campus Crusade had this, this winter conference in February. And they called it the Senior Panic because seniors didn't know what they were going to do with their lives. It was a recruitment. You know, it was basically a recruitment conference. And so it was the first time I'd ever heard about asking myself, what does God want you to do with your life? And I took that seriously. Uh, I'd surrendered my life to Christ, but I just never thought about what I'd do after college. So I began to pray fervently that God would show me what he wanted me to do with my life. And at the conference, I, one afternoon I was reading through 2 Timothy 2, and it was like God really spoke to me strongly through that passage and showed me he had called me to make disciples who'd make disciples. And he wasn't really calling me to go on staff with Campus Crusade, it's just that was the best opportunity to make disciples who'd make disciples. And I was so excited about that. I was just, it was like so excited that God had actually spoken to me, but also that God had shown me what my future would be. And, and that was, gosh, 50, 54 years. 50, it was a long time ago. And, <laughs> and that's exactly what turned out to be. That became my purpose in life. That's what God has used me to do over the years. And God has worked through me to help people know him and then help other people to know him through those. And it's been, it's been a, an incredible adventure. And it took me from a purposeless, motivationless young man to I'm still so excited that, um, gosh, I could have retired 10 years ago, but I'm not going to retire. Um, they're going to have to take me kicking and screaming out of here. I love what I do. And that's the point, is that God has created you not just to take, deliver you from something, but for a purpose that nobody else can do, just like you, because that's the way he's made you. Does that make sense? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works for us to walk in them. 
And the best way I know to find out what those good works are is just take the opportunities God gives you. And when you take these little opportunities to serve others, to love others, to, to do what the Bible tells you to do, doors open. Things happen. I never knew I would end up where I am today. It just wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't just lay it all out one afternoon, say, here's what you'll be doing when you're 74 years old. It was just one thing led to another, and it's been the greatest adventure. So, first, God saves us to take us from barrenness to productivity. Nothing fulfills like being used by God for his purpose. Now, the second thing we're safe for is to go from shame to honor. Guilt is feeling bad for what you've done. Shame is feeling bad for who you are. And if, unless you're a psychopath, and I know we, we have a few psychopaths in our, in our church, Every church does. But unless you're a psychopath, you've got things you're ashamed of in your past. Isn't that true? We've all got things we wish we could do over. We wish we could have a second chance. And one of the things that God wants to do is to take us from shame to honor. Israel is ashamed at this point. Israel has been unfaithful to God for centuries. And they're feeling the weight of this shame in their captivity in Babylon. They are a despised people. A people who have dishonored God and therefore been dishonored. But God says through Isaiah that this is not your future. That because of the Messiah's finished work and triumph, that just as he shared your shame on the cross, you will shame his, you will share his honor in his triumph. Let's read this. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Again, Israel is this woman who is dishonored who has done bad things, who has deserted her husband to commit adultery, uh, who has lost all of her respect and reputation. As a result of this, God says, I've got better things in the future for you. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken, and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, talking about their taking into captivity from their land. But with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting love and kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Here's the picture. Israel is pictured like an adulterous woman who has left her husband and has been used and abused by so many men that now she's homeless, rejected, and dishonored. And yet her husband goes and finds her and takes her home and puts the, the best robe on her and declares her his wife again with all the honor and respect 
of the wife of God. She's not loved because she's honorable. She's honorable because she's loved. She is God. And, and that tells us that our honor is not based on who we are, but whose we are. That God has honored us. God has married us. God has put his love permanently on us, and that makes us the most honored of the earth. But Israel says, that's great, but I failed once. How do I know if I fail again? I won't be thrown out. And God says, I'm glad you asked. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. After the flood, God promised Noah, I will never again destroy the world by water. And now God says through Isaiah, my covenant with you, Israel, and with all those who put their faith in the Messiah will be just like this. I will never turn my back on you. I will never separate myself from you. I will never desert you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Why? Because our position before him is not based on who we are, but who Jesus is. It's not based on what we've done, but what he's done. He's done. God has set his permanent love on us. Our honor is secure because we are honored as those beloved by God. It's natural to want to be recognized. It's natural to want to be appreciated and loved. And we can look for that honor and that recognition from people who really don't care. Or we can look at it from God. Do you ever notice how the Apostle John describes himself in the Bible? He always describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Does that mean that Jesus didn't love his other disciples? No, he loved him, just the same as John. But John's whole identity was... I am loved by Jesus. And it transformed his life. That's the way we've got to think. I am loved by God. If you really believe you're loved by a God who will never let you go, who honors you as his spouse, how would it change your life? How would it free you from concern about what people think, what people say, what people do? We would embrace the, the dishonor that comes from following Christ greatly, sharing in his reproach, because we know we will share in his honor one day because of what he's done. So God has saved us to make us productive, to live a life that matters. He saved us to honor us, to honor us above all peoples. And finally, he saved us to take us from fear to confidence. Again, Isaiah is speaking to Israel as a fearful, anxious woman. And he says, your anxiety is only temporary. Look what he says. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony 
and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystals and your entire wall of precious stones. Does that remind you of the end of, of Revelation at all about the description of the new Jerusalem? God is saying to Israel, and this is only one place he says to those who put their faith in the Messiah, this is your future. Your future is going to be better than anything you can imagine. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you think your future will be better than this world? It's going to be so much better than this world that you would, if you could see what God has prepared, you would not be content to stay here. You'd, want, you'd believe with Paul, for me to die is gain. I want out of here. And, and what God is saying to this distressed woman, your future is guaranteed. Your future is so much better than anything you could want or imagine. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me, as it has been up to this point, because I sent the Assyrians, I sent the Babylonians because of your idolatry, but I will no longer use people against you because I will be for you. I have become your husband. I have become your justifier. I have become your savior. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of the coals and brings out a weapon for its work. I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. God says to those who put their faith in the Messiah, everything that you fear, I'm in charge of. I'm in control of. And I only mean it for your good. He addresses all their fears, their fear of the future, their fear of what will happen to their kids, the fear of their enemies, the fear of slander. All these things God says, I will guard against and I will only use it for your good. I only want your best all things will work together for you. your good because I love you. See the point? I want you to be courageous. I want you to be confident because I am for you. I love you and nothing is outside my control. You ever notice in the Bible how people who follow Jesus are confident and courageous? In Acts, early in Acts, Jesus' enemies saw the Christians and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Why? Because of their courage. They weren't intimidated. They were confident. And they said, that reminds us of him. They're just like him. Paul says, pray that I may speak confidently as I ought to speak. Do you know the command that's repeated more often in the Bible than any other command? Fear not. Fear not. It occurs 366 times. That's one for every day of the year, plus one for that really bad day. Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Fear is a choice. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I could not love you 
more than I do. I could not be in greater control of everything that surrounds you, of your enemies, of the weapons against you than I am. You have nothing to worry about. Be courageous. Be courageous. That's what I've saved you for. To no matter what is happening around you, no matter who is against you, no matter what people are saying or doing, no matter what the threat is, I am on top of it. I've got control of it, and I'm just using it for your good. All you have to do is believe that. Believe it and act like people who know they're beloved by God. That's the abundant life. It's a productive life. It's an honorable life. It's a fearless life. And that's the life that God has created us for. A healthy heart knows that you need God. And so you keep coming to God day after day after day for all that you need from him. The courage, the boldness, the fruitfulness, the guidance. I need God because I'm created to live in union with him. An unhealthy heart thinks I don't need God except in certain situations. So I avoid God until I need him. God wants you to have a healthy heart, to be totally dependent on him and finding your satisfaction and joy from your union with him and trusting him with your life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the abundant life you've created us to live. Thank you for what you've saved us for. And I pray that like John, we will be disciples whom you love, know that you love us, and live like it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.